Welcome back to the Unchanging Education Podcast. This is Season 4, Episode 5, Oakshot Part 2, Wrapping Them Up, Season 4 Finale. So we're discussing Oakshot and a number of quotes where he's discussing government. And we can think of education where he's discussing government. For example, some people see government as a reservoir of power to be used towards any number of ends. And certainly the same can be said of education. Some people see education as a reservoir of power to be used towards any number of ends. And the opposite of this idea is the sense of saying no and to say that education for education's sake is more desirable. So this goes against what we might call a silver bullet kind of thinking, or even a silver bullet fallacy, or the silver bulletization of education as this reservoir of power to solve all of our problems. And a problem emerges here, and there's a sense of, I think we can say hedonism, that what education needs to create is more of a desire and more of a passion in students. And this is certainly all implicit in the change agents rhetoric. But there's a concern here that dialing up desire and passion may only produce conflict without end and to be at war with the world via a brand of activism. So shouldn't education have a role to play in actually doing the opposite, to tamp down passion and desire, to be against a kind of hedonism, uh, you know, to do what thou will, and instead promote a kind of a cool rationality? When we talk about inquiring minds in education, that we also talk about a kind of a dispassionate disposition. And so TC thus also is aligned with inactivism, a term we find in Philip Rife and even perhaps popularized by Dennis Miller. So in contrast, the conservative says the job of education is just as much to tamp down on desire as it is to harness desire or passion towards any kind of aim. So what we're interested in actually is self-governed agents or self-governing agents rather than explicitly change agents. While it's true that we do, of course, want ethical actors and moral agents, there's a concern that it becomes too outward at the expense of an inward focus. And this outward ethical action for change has this characteristic of zeal. Whereas an inward focus of a self-governed agent would be characterized not by zeal, but by virtue. This sort of education is not the agent of a divine order. It provides a service. Its subjects, us, we, recognize as valuable. 
It is a secondary activity and does not engage in the primary activities of its subjects. Education has a specific, not a universal role to play. That education should solve a problem, not solve all of our problems. So, we could say number one is that we want everyone to be well-educated. And certainly no one is born so. No one is born well-educated. And so education is, in simplest terms, a way to move as many people as possible and as much as possible from being uneducated into being educated. Um, because not only is no one born educated, but also we have this long period of dependency as human beings. And so when we say we're talking about education in this way, we mean it both quantitatively and qualitatively in terms of both of these dimensions of width and depth. We want everyone, we, we do want universal education. And we also want our educated people to be particularly well-educated. But the silver bullet thinking in education has made it ineffective. That to do one thing well is going to be more reliable. It's going to have more certain gains than trying to do everything. Now for all of us, but especially for the young, understanding the world and seeing what is and seeing it in terms of how we got here historically. And fostering some kind of appreciation for culture. The exact opposite of this is this more politically charged sense of condemning the past and the present and imagining a future. Now, we can probably defend a more neutral view, right? That we should neither merely think of history um, as some great thing to appreciate, nor as something to condemn. We can have more of a neutral disposition, somewhere in between pure appreciation and pure condemnation. But again, we're thinking in terms of what is going to more reliably produce something that is good. And so I think that probably the best solution is that we do want to think in terms of past and present and how can we extend whatever was great about the past and to renew it and to revitalize it primarily and only secondarily to revise it because of the great wisdom that's required to really to make innovations or improvements rather than just changes. So one of the books on Oakshot I'm looking at here, uh, again, Secondary Literature by Franco, that education is, it is and it promotes the conversation of humanity. But to recruit, train, and produce a particular kind of human being Let's just take the example of that is decidedly left of center, politically. Could be seen by a self-interested leftist as a success. 
but anyone who sought to view this objectively would see it otherwise, I believe. If it was instead for the right, it would, for example, that if education were primarily focused on, you know, creating Christian soldiers, that would be criticized not only for its content, for the specific aims, or the conservative ideals that may or may not be behind it, but it would also be criticized for its form, that we would hear that education is not supposed to tell you what to think. But I think this voice really has yet to fully emerge, or to emerge in full strength, and maybe it is marshalling intellectual resources. So the idea here is that it's both an issue in terms of its form and its content. That, well, sure, we may not, we may all disagree on whatever kind of content, any kind of training in terms of how people should think about the world. But I think that we should be able to get to more of a a kind of argument that mirrors a kind of separation of church and state. That, okay, let's agree that we neither want education produced in Christian soldiers nor justice warriors for the exact same reason. This trope about um, how to think and not what to think as a matter of principle. That any kind of political persuasion enacted through institutional levers is, we can say, inherently undesirable, regardless of the underlying cause. Even if we seem to like that cause, we still, I think, have to say in much more of a unified voice that this is not what we want our education to be or to look like. And I think that we can see this religious shape or flavor on both sides, actually. Um, I talked a moment ago about zeal versus virtue in terms of the more zealous outward change agents versus the more virtuous inward self-governed type. But the zealous change agent operates in a religious form that's much more like inquisition while the inward self-governing virtuous type, the religious comparison would be something more like sagacity uh, or being like a sage. So there's an article here about college indoctrination um, that touches on this, this religious training in education, about safe spaces where students from marginalized groups gather to discuss their victimization and trigger warnings, disclaimers by schools to new students about possibly upsetting politically incorrect ideas. This trend appears to impose politically correct values, that is the values of certain special interest groups onto all students. Instead of teaching students to learn to think for themselves, these programs teach them how and what to think, as well as how to behave. In effect, it appears to be a form of religious training. So coming back to TVSC here, 
Uh, I won't go further into the this article. And bringing this back to this whole concept of esteem and self-esteem. And that there's a correlation between high self-esteem and a successful life. And I think this is probably more important in education than the average person may seem to realize. And SC seems to make an assumption that we need to generate self-esteem in students for them to be able to have success. And it doesn't really seem to take into account that successful people have self-esteem because of their success itself. So this is what, and this relates to any kind of education that is a, a political, a political education that has this kind of religious flavor to it. That ultimately, and this is sort of in favor of a more conservative-minded approach, that we want students to be well-educated in a way that the current world understands, and that this is more likely to result in more success for the products of education uh, graduates. And therefore, people are going to find more esteem, and I say esteem, I mean social esteem. And then perhaps self-esteem is in a way is, is f fed into through this, but perhaps later in the process. Versus educating in this in this self-esteem as a precursor that you cannot achieve success nor esteem if you don't have sufficient self-esteem at the beginning to begin with. But what if this approach that wants to put self-esteem first does not lead to success or achievement and doesn't seem to produce esteem? Partly because, again, it's an education that is not really meant to graduate people that are well-educated in a way that the world understands. That they're not people who are trying to be conventionally successful, right? To, you know, to, uh, to work hard or to do a job well that in the end that this would only be seen as proof of a bad world, that it would confirm this suspicion that there is something wrong with the world because these people that, well, we're going to make sure they have self-esteem so then they can have success. And if this self-esteem-based, this, this huge emphasis in education, if it doesn't lead to people being well-educated and finding success in the world, then that's proof that something wrong with the world. Whereas we may be better off with this other view that is more focused on real success and gaining or earning esteem in the world as ways to earn self-esteem too. So it's a matter of what part of the process in education we want to place self-esteem in TV and at SC. Okay, back to Franco 
and Okshan. Culture is a civilization composing conversation. The conversation composes a civilization, and that that is culture. Education is set apart from schooling, in a way, because it is unlike the narrow practical life and is instead a wide spiritual inheritance to become human or to become more human. I tend to think less in terms of conversation, but perhaps more in terms of an interview. That, sure, education is a conversation, but it's also an interview in the sense that you know, students asking good questions and teachers trying to give good answers. And the quality of that Q&A or interview or conversation will reflect the quality of education itself. And so one thing I often think of, um, you know, as a teacher is that the one of the great things about it is that, and why it actually works so well in so many ways, is that students are curious, or we could say young people are curious, that they want to know things almost naturally. Um, curious, often we also hear the word inquisitiveness. And so, since that is sort of more naturally situated, then more of a focus on teachers able to give good answers. And again, we keep coming back to this emphasis on content and knowledge and expertise or mastery on the part of the teacher, which is perhaps the clearest difference between the very different emphases in TC and SC. So before coming back to Oakshot, I want to take another kind of divergence here and talk about what may seem, it may seem like an out-of-place idea, but I don't think it is. And I don't know who to credit for the idea that activism has replaced the old sex cells mantra. The new way to sell is via activism or sustainability or social justice, and people style themselves in this way. And certainly one of the powers that this new way of selling, this, this activistic form, uh, as stated, that replaces the old sex cells, it seems less superficial, or it seems more substantive as a way to render oneself more attractive or more desirable, or for older people or institutions that want to be relevant. And increasingly, when I hear or see relevant in this desire to be relevant, certainly that's an emphasis that SC brings to education. I think that it's just a desire to be hip, that there's no meaningful distinction between relevancy and hipness through activistic politics. But paradoxically, this new form is only superficially less superficial. In reality, it is just as superficial as sex cells. But it conceals its superficiality in a turbocharged rhetoric. While, I think, and I think 
interestingly, sexuality can be subtle or overt. But activism has but one speed. And these self-styled saviors are the new sex symbol. Going a little further with this, one governing idea is how much mass manipulation has shifted away from a sex sells truism and towards an activism sells model. The backlash against hypersexualized commercials that dabble in the absurd, actually, is surely part of this perceived trend. And I think it was really 10 to 15 years ago this really started to change. And one of the, probably the best example is it was around 2010, maybe 2011, about these Carl's Jr. advertisements that were kind of, um, I mean, hypersexual, but also I think, you know, in a way comically absurd as well. Anyway, I've never been to reading at a Carl's Jr. and just as it happens. But I think in a way that this kind of signaled a death knell uh, in this transition in the sort of dominant mode of commodification, of selling something. Now, certainly this um, goes back to the 1960s, I think. Um, and once again, have to bring it back to this idea of relevancy and education and, and a desire to be hip. And perhaps, again, it's achieved not through some kind of direct appeal to the senses, but almost a direct appeal to a kind of teenage rebelliousness. And that that is not something that education really seems to manage or to delimit anymore or to try to redirect into something productive. That would certainly be, I think, regarded as much more conservative. There's a sense almost that that, that there's a purity and an honesty in that teenage rebelliousness that has to be nurtured. And I think we can ask, I think quite fairly, um, what are the fruits of this new approach or this new emphasis? And so the idea here is that activism is selling like hotcakes in education, and teachers and students alike are loath to be left out of the trend. Okay, let me dive much more into Oakshot. I've been doing a lot of editorializing. Oakshot eviscerated the 1949 book, The Crisis in the University, by Sir Walter Moberly. Moberly sees the world as in crisis or in desperate straits, and education must now serve as an ethical, moral, spiritual guide for the aimlessly adrift in the world. Oakshot may consider this idea to be cliché, facile, naive, simple-hearted, and even dangerous. A revolution in education to save us, to provide a view of the world that is somehow unified and or integrated, Oakshot rejects this as nonsense. Because assuming this goal is even possible is a mistake. And even if the university has a singular 
ethical, moral, spiritual doctrine to save us, it would be hopelessly oppressive, anathema to curiosity and exploration. So, certainly one of the reasons that we would be interested in someone like Oakshot is his prescience. And also because it serves this intellectual history that this idea that education has this mission to change the world goes back to at least 1949. Uh, and again, serves this idea that, well, we've had 100 years of SC and um, how would we judge the success of that century based on where education is today? Oakshot has nothing but contempt for the condemnation of quote-unquote privilege, a leisured class, and the solutions of equity and social justice back even in the 1940s. So again, this idea of education as a savior, this certainly ties back to this silver bullet fallacy. This idea betrays the ideal of the university as a marketplace of ideas onto the world. Ideas, plural. The competition of ideas in this marketplace is essential. The allure to settle on what we now think is the best idea, the best way for people to think and act and live is a horrifying prospect. The world of learning must be mobile. Using any ideological cement to affix it is undesirable. The virtue of the university is to have the character of an open conversation, lacking entirely the tyranny of a chairman to determine its course or arbitrarily articulate some grand conclusion. It goes without saying that this refers to a dialogue and not a monologue, not a soliloquy. And with that emphasis, we have a process in which we can engage to think better and refine thought and better learn how to think. Opposed to this is a non-conversation whereby some self-appointed divine authority tells us exactly what to think in the name of saving us and or the world. So I'm coming to what I think is the ultimate Oakshot quote that as much as any other passage in all of my reading and interest in this topic. In university, Oakshot begins, one can, for the first time, set aside the hot allegiances of youth without needing new allegiances, to be able to abandon old loyalties without needing new ones, to be agnostic in the world's of what is known and what is not, to be adrift in a most constructive and informative and indeed liberating way. In this place, a person could be uncommitted and break from tyrannical pressure to, pretend to, know exactly who you are and what you think. This position is like the knowing I know nothing of Socrates 
and the raising of certainty with doubt of Descartes. To be free, finally, from the petty, trivial, low-stakes, partisan struggles in the world. Not only not to take any side, but to be rid of that whole paradigm for a refreshing moment. That is the taste of mystery. A relief from the weight of an incessant solution-seeking demand. An unburdening tantamount to a religious, or perhaps psychedelic, experience. A transformation that is predominantly a dissolution and an unbecoming. To be able to interrogate and to dance with ideas and even to reform the foundations of the I-self. In sum, what university ought to aspire to is to be an interval or an interim, a pause, a break, a space, a lacuna, a gap, or an intervention. And we ought to judge the success or failure of a university with respect to how it facilitates this experience and do the same in judging the quality of one's individual education. The momentary discovery of truly infinite possibilities while your certain self in and of the certain world melts away. You become free from the burdensome curse that life is split into work and play because of a Kantian-esque third category whereby one works productively at the play of the mind, blending productivity and unrestrained liberty. This is the discovery of a new dimension in life, to discover a new fruit and to taste its unfamiliar flavors. To think of education as a road is dreadfully restrictive. It is instead a boundless sea that beckons your outstretched sails. Now, certainly you've noticed, I'm par I've paraphrased some parts here, um, adding some, some of my own uh, flair. But this is, I would say, probably 90% uh, you know, um, you know, directly from Oakshot with my own little parenthetical additions. So in this spirit, we can disabuse ourselves of the tepid illusion that university or any school or even education can be a force of good in the world. It can only be a force of good, or you can say change, in your world. And by extension, but indirectly, can you become a force of good in the world, throwing down your proverbial gauntlet. And the real crisis is that we fail to recognize this and that education fails to provide these moments with regularity to all or at all. So coming back to the beginning here, we talked about setting aside hot allegiances, right? Not to, not to have these really strictly enforced boundaries uh, with their gatekeepers, but to really be something like nomadic. The problem is how education has moved in exactly the opposite direction, that we not only have 
you know, sure, people do trade their hot allegiances for other hot allegiances or even molten allegiances. But in education, you know, young people, students, and probably most of all in universities, there's an even greater certainty that takes hold. And there is no relief. There's no... Um, even this emphasis on this kind of internal change, that, that education changes you from the inside. No, that your education really focuses your eye outwardly and that it's irreducibly tribal, not nomadic, and that it's uninterrogated and that it's devoid of this discovery of the unknown. And more and more, it is only to discover new ways to assert what one ostensibly knows for sure. So this indicates not only, um, I think, what, what Oakshot thinks, and it gives us an effective description of TC, but also just how far away we are from this, this kind of idea, how far we've gone in, in one particular direction without really knowing for sure how good that direction is before going so far and so deep into it. Those who would, in becoming the new leaders of educational institutions, distort this purpose with their own desires, their own purposes, their own designs. With nothing to learn and everything to teach, manage nothing but contempt for the spirit of education. And again, we get this idea here of inverted students, that the students are the ones who have everything to teach and nothing to learn. And again, this has everything to do with unleashing passion and desire and, you know, coaching them into change agents who are supposed to be the people who say how things are supposed to be. And there's no trace of this, this sense of being a humble apprentice to a grand master um, and, and wanting to learn or know something that is. Later, Oakshot would be more specific in what education should try to do. To initiate the uninitiated. To offer up their intellectual inheritance. To invite them into a bounteous conversational feast for the gourmet mind. Seeing yourself in the mirror of this inheritance is emancipatory. It is anything but emaciating. And it is far from oppression. More specific still, your schooling, pragmatically, as practical, vocational, and useful, resides in the knowledge of what's already been achieved and can conform to an invaluable training manual as a kind of literature through which to master some information. But your education is different, though not necessarily greater. This is the schooling versus education distinction. You accept nothing, and thus you can only interrogate and explore 
as a kind of language, language here as opposed to literature. So in Oksha, he's using the phrase, he's, he's coupling schooling with learning a literature, like a kind of a, a fixed body of knowledge that's already known, that you can study it and you learn it. For example, you learn how to do something through a schooling in a certain kind of literature. This is opposed to the much more broad and you can say more high-minded view of education with its language. Again, as something that's more um, in flux and in formation. Not as a product, but as a process. A way to think. So this is, this is interesting and important because it shows us that education really of course, it's about what to think and how to think. Okay, like there is a right way to think about fixing a car. I mean, not that I know anything about auto repair or, you know, these kind of practical, like there are certainly many things that we learn about that we do already know the answer. And it is a matter of, you know, what is the, the best, right, correct, optimal approach, right? That there are real solutions and there are wrong answers and so you know any kind of schooling in any kind of a literature is exactly that so it's only when we're talking about education or not as a literature but as a language that's where we're focused on like that's the part that should be how to think not what to think again the process of it the process of a language education not the product of a literature schooling. A way to think or a manner of thinking to know how a literature gets made and remade and unmade. This is the ideal relationship that higher education has to all other derived forms of schooling. So really it's not until university where you really get out of schooling, out of these literatures, and you get into the this education language process. And much of it really has a lot to do with how do those how do those literatures that you learn in your schooling, like how do those products get made and revised? And um, it's kind of a looking behind the curtain of schooling and literature and participating in this education language. Um, the process behind the product. Schooling is made up of authoritative ingredients that form a complete picture of information. University education is much less specific as it pertains to judgment used at your discretion in matters where there can be no set recipe. So just something like philosophy, we can imagine that it's going to be more advantageous to older upper year or university level students because again philosophy is it's uh, it's intriguing to minds that want to engage in speculation because there are certain kind of eternal questions that all we can do is speculate on the answers but there are no real solutions 
so education is also an, an, an initiation into your historical inheritance of the disciplinary languages that comprise human culture and civilization. When socialization, integration into current culture, replaces education, we are truly lost, and we embark upon a dark path to a barbarous age. When this inheritance is withheld or squandered, then the continuity with the past, the lineage of knowing, breaks. The image of humanity as a collective and continuous process stalls, and what was known, and can be known, falters. Can the university be the solution to our problems? Can it center human consciousness and direct us in spite of our disintegratory drift? I don't know. So coming back to the quote again, the, not that what we have is not an education that sets aside hot allegiances, but an education of nothing but. Uh, again, I like this phrase of molten allegiances, um, you know, hotter than hot, so to speak. And that we're in such a stark contradiction to Oakshot where we should set aside these hot allegiances um, and become something like broad thinkers, we find more and more that education is a pressure cooker, a bipartisan us and them, tribal, not nomadic. The spirit of the university cannot survive this. And I think when you have these really pronounced tribes, these sides of us and them. There's also no real transaction that occurs with knowledge or with knowing. There's just this, again, this will to power, this desire to dominate. But transaction is also an interesting word for a different reason. And this gets us into Freire a little bit here that this idea of transaction should be something that we really laud and um, maintain as one of the really essential activities of education. But this whole idea of transaction is also, it's been diminished largely because of Freire, uh, also pronounced as Freire, but I'm using the anglicized Freire. We can try to follow Freire and abandon the merely transactional for the thoroughly transformational, but must appreciate the undesired effect. We abandon transaction and fail to transform, and now have lost the transactional nature too. So when you say, well, we shouldn't just, you know, transact knowledge and information, we need to transform, but you might yeah, again, in this Oakshadian kind of thinking that, well, what if you come to discover that you have failed to transform and you've also abandoned transaction and now you've just done nothing? And so teaching and learning exist independently and education defined as the interplay of these forces is undone. 
but I think the there may be even a, a deeper underlying logic here that you can say, well, no, it's impossible to have failed to transform because simply by abandoning this transaction of knowledge, for example, from one generation to another, from teachers to students, um, of, for example, a transaction that would involve a literature in schooling in the terms that I've been using, the success is that, well, obviously we've transformed the world because we've taken transaction out of it, that that is the transformation. It's not that, well, what Freire seems to be saying superficially is that, well, this whole notion of a transactional education, like bank accounts, the students' minds are empty bank accounts and the teacher is depositing information, knowledge, maybe even wisdom, and that this is this doesn't aim high enough for what education should be doing, that it is a paltry form of education, that oh, all you're doing is these, these knowledge transactions, these you know deposits, and then students can later make a withdrawal from all the knowledge that they've learned. And I think that it's almost, it's probably the single greatest missed opportunity in the history of pedagogy maybe not the history of education, that to just say, yes. But the thing is, where Freire is saying, just thinking in terms of transaction, it's so uninspired. To say, Freire, you have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of this kind of knowledge transaction. And the, I think the knockdown argument against this, frankly, stupid way, this this gross misunderstanding of education is to say transactions are transformational. That this process of teaching and learning and the relationship between teacher and student, it is a transformation. You do want to gain knowledge and to be able to summon this information, to summon, you know, facts and specifics later that things that you've learned about, that you can recall them, make a quote-unquote withdrawal, is powerful too. But again, maybe it's not about, well, you know, transaction, that's, you know, that's a, that's a poor use of education. We need to instead focus on transformation. But I think that what seems, what may seem undeniable is that the only way that this transformation has really succeeded is simply by ceasing the transaction and by severing something. That's still, a, a, a severing is still a kind of a transformation. But again, there's this positive prejudice towards change and transformation that these are, these have to be good, right? Is there any example of a change or a transformation that was not beneficial or advantageous? Yes, of course there are. But it's completely elided. The other important consideration when it comes to transformation, again, I've already touched upon this, but not using this word transformation, is... 
seek to transform yourself, not to transform the world. Or any kind of change or innovation, any positive change, any improvement that can be made in the world is going to be made by someone who has focused on transforming themselves or somehow improving or optimizing. That there has to be an inward lookingness. These, you know, an, an unreflective person that is hell-bent on changing the world may succeed in changing it, but not in improving it. So instead, in TC, we want to move students from being uneducated to being educated. And again, we want to maximize this both quantitatively and qualitatively. We want everyone to get it. We want everyone to be literate, for example. And for as many people as is reasonable or as is possible, uh, we want them to be what we might call highly educated. And that is the move. That's the way that TC works. We're moving from uneducated to educated. Again, no one's born educated. We have a long period of development. Let's take all the kind of a priori uneducated people and move as many of them into as much education as we can. In SC, the move is completely different. And again, this is why I'm talking about Freire here. It's about moving the world from oppression to liberation. Really, I mean, that has nothing to do, really, with schooling or education. But it's the way that the silver bullet thinking opens the door to this. Right? That it's... That education, like government, is just seen as a, a reservoir or a reserve of power that can be, you know, redirected for totally different purposes. And it's this... And it instrumentalizes students for the change, for these desired political changes, for what you would call liberation, or for transformation. And the instrumentalization of students that's occurring through this SC superdominant modality or paradigm that we're in, again, the way to cut this off is to say education for education's sake, education for its own sake. We want to make students educated. We don't want to... And we aren't even necessarily in favor of them being change agents. We want them to be self-governing agents. We want them, again, thinking in, in, these, in these kind of more religious terms, that we want them to be more inward focused. We want them to be less like zealous fanatics or, you know, inquisitors. We want them to be more like sages. And we want them to be virtuous. Okay. So I know that I've taken a, a turn into Freire, but uh, I think it's a very productive contrast with Oakshot and Freire and some of these problems that are brought up here. 
and also to situate again as I kind of want to keep coming back to this Rousseau to Dewey to Freire and even though Oakshot isn't one of my my kind of big three for TC uh, from from Locke to Bagley to Philip Rife um, but I just want to come back to this whole transfer transaction um, belittling this transformational it's just just like a, a bank transfer right and of course implicit is this is this again this whole myth about how in in tc um students are seen as these are seen as empty vessels right and and the teacher is just depositing into them in the way that they're they're seen as these the, this faceless de-individualized collective because first of all you know that there's no appreciation here for actually how hard that is right so let's take one person who really knows a lot about something and fill the room with all these other people who don't know anything about it and at the end of a certain amount of time those the students will come to know what the teacher knows it is if if that were to happen over the course of you know weeks or months that is an incredible achievement to be able to do that to say oh, all you're doing is just this 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 transaction this transfer this depositing um only someone who knows absolutely nothing about education about teaching or even about being a student could so you know belittle that process and secondarily how transformational learning itself is right i spent this time apprenticing someone who knows so much about something and i came away learning so much about it and learning so much from them about this topic but all these other intangible things too uh, i know it sounds kind of it's cliche but also learning about um, myself So the, the person who does not understand education but only wants to weaponize it or to, again, to the instrumentalization of students, that education is not a thing to be done for its own sake. It has to be instrumentalized if not weaponized. And again, I think that Freire here is taking his cue from Dewey and even, but I think to a lesser extent, from Rousseau. Of course, classrooms privilege certain kinds of knowledge and ways of knowing. The classroom is an historical invention, a methodology, and a cultural product that privileges what the teacher knows and what the teacher is teaching. That's what's privileged or prioritized but that's a consequence of what the class is supposed to be about, as agreed upon in advance, right? You, you go to an English class and you have an English teacher and you learn English. Why is English being privileged or prioritized in that space for that time? Just simply because that's what the classroom is, that's what the class is, and that's what the teacher and the students are all there for. 
Okay, but then coming back to this, this so-called banking model with Freire. And again, the idea that the student here is merely passive. No. The student is just a vessel in this pejorative way, right? This empty blank bank account. This is an extremely offensive way to describe the master-apprentice relationship. And we have to have an appreciation for the way that this structure of, of a relationship, of again, a, a master and an apprentice, that this is at the very heart of civilization. To say, oh, well, you know, all the apprentice is doing is just acting like an, you know, like an empty blank nothing and, you know, the master has all the power. Well, okay, but ultimately it shouldn't, it can't be judged that superficially. It has to be judged upon how effective the the apprenticeship as a whole, you know, how it succeeds or not. Can't just say, no, we're against master-apprentice relationships. It's, it's the exact same as saying we're against parent-child relationships. We're just, we're against these relationships because they're the foundation of a civilization we don't like, which is, which certainly goes way too far. And I, I can appreciate that to an extent, sure, the word master may offend a, the progressive educationalist, but again, it's, it's used in this context of the guild. So why, why, I think it's fair, we have to make a case. We can't just say students being, you know, humble apprentices, that it may not just be good on its face and you know it, it uh, the case should be made for for why this is a good disposition i mean we could simply start off by saying that it's much better for someone to be a humble apprentice to a kind of knowledge and again you're an apprentice to knowledge you're only and, and the master is just sort of the conduit for that and very oftentimes i mean if you want to learn about something, but you have a bad experience with one teacher, you can get another teacher. You can find ways to make a kind of education work for you. But anyway, it's certainly better to be a humble apprentice than to be a disenchanted victim. But the reason that the humble apprentice mode, again, may be offensive to the sensibilities of a progressive educationalist but the whims of the novice must be mitigated and that the novice cannot the novice or the apprentice cannot be the one dictating the course of their own learning that the master doesn't bend to the novice or the, the apprentice certainly not the grandmaster What is needed is a, a very solid and established foundation in knowledge. Then that is what has to be gained as an apprentice. I mean, sometimes I think that people who think about the people who are excellent teachers, who I think are unknowingly teacher-centered, 
they they are emphasizing this simply by demanding and commanding respect that their students must be like must show a great deal of respect but ultimately again sc wants to paint this as somehow you know cruel um but it's a respect for learning it's a respect for knowledge for the content as much it is a respect for the social environment it's not this really concentrated um way of forcing students to respect you as an individual teacher under the threat of some kind of punishment. It's respect for learning and for knowledge and for education itself and for the literatures or languages in the, in the product of schooling, in the process of education. So this democratization, so-called, whereby students are equal, we can say from a TC perspective, it's not progressive. It's regressive. It's backwards. It's a counterculture hangover. In the bluntest possible terms, student-centeredness is absurd. And there's another kind of paradoxical effect that happens here. Student satisfaction, I suggest, declines. The more it's focused on and made an emphasis, we really want to increase student satisfaction. So let's make sure we're satisfying our students. I think that this is what we might call a paradoxical intention. And so it declines. Again, this is counterintuitive to educational progressives. With the rise of equal democratic participation, students deep down want expertise and not someone who bends to their will the ill-informed ignorant whims of the novice but instead if we really want student satisfaction and if we're willing to fight for it we could say students want someone who knows what they're talking about who demands their respect and their attention and also someone who says in a world full of chaff here is wheat that there is there is a kind of an intensity in matching this curiosity and and satisfying or or satiating it and that is the great power that teachers should have And it can't be achieved just by saying, you know, solve your own curiosities yourself. I don't believe that it can deliver student satisfaction. And again, a hundred years later, I think that students are less satisfied than ever. We want institutions to change and to become modern until they abandon the traditions that uphold them. When any institution becomes excessively servile, we want to be relevant, we want to be hip, right? As if a whole generation of, of you know, the mature generation, for example, you know, parents and teachers, they want to be hip and modern and they almost become servile. They relinquish any claim to authority and thus to respect. 
this is kind of an extreme interpretation of this kind of character of TC and the explicitly traditional conservative aspect. And of course, it's a theoretical point because there are plenty of excellent teachers and I think tough teachers are more likely to be great teachers on the front lines. Same way with tough parents. And by tough here, I really just mean uncompromising in upholding and maintaining standards or, you know, uh, enforcing the rules. Even just by consistently rewarding what's good and punishing what's bad or unwanted or undesirable. But, you know, so really this is much more focused on pedagogy. It's not a critique of teachers or a critique of parents or anything of that sort. That it's really focused on how these ideas manifest in education through pedagogy. Pedagogy, again, just meaning educational philosophy or the philosophy of education. So it's pedagogy here that's, that's the aim or the target. And that it's gone too far afield. And again, we have to judge the tree by its fruit, so to speak. And that we've got at least three generations of this new radical pedagogy. Or we can say three generations of the radical pedagogues and thus two generations of these radicalized teachers. Because again, every generation has to teach the other one. That's why I'm subtracting one. And then one generation of these radical students. And from the pedagogy of three generations ago are the teachers of two generations ago and then the students. And again, perhaps the most strange as it may sound, the most destructive legacy of this radical pedagogy is destruction itself. This whole idea that, well, there's no cost to destruction because it's a bad world that ought to be destroyed anyway, and that to destroy is to love somehow. And certainly education is not the only institution losing trust and losing credibility and losing its authority. I often think of, you know, what's happened to the news media is a very interesting comparison with what's happened in education. That te teachers like news anchors, I mean, it's hard to imagine, or we could say to the same extent that teachers, that news anchors today have you know fallen far from the Walter Cronkite. And I think this same, I think there's a similarity with the way that the trust and credibility and authority that teachers used to have is gone too, um, as it has with news media. So where I'm, where I'm pulling this, this whole language of the literature versus the language, 
This is coming from uh, a different uh, secondary source by Isaacs and talking about, first of all, education as something vocational, right, where you kind of learn real applicable skills. The skills of a civilization, though, farmer, lawyer, plumber, they obtain what's called a state of the art, a body of information. How, but how this knowledge came to be the current shape of understanding actually is not important at that first stage, right? And so always asking these philosophical why questions at the early stage before you've, you know, really learned anything is out of order, so to speak. A vocational education is concerned only with a literature or text, not a language. The ink is dry, the page is dead. But whereas education, especially at the university, the ink is fresh, it's a living document, it's a language. So we, we can probably organize this into K-12, to which is more literature-based, right? Or K-12 to schooling is literature-based versus a university education that's more language-based. I know this is kind of uh, counterintuitive because we would think that, well, first you have to learn the language. It seems more basic, right? Before, like, you have to learn the English language before you can attempt English literature, but here, um, yeah, I realize it's inverted, but um, anyway, it serves a useful distinction. And it also points to a big problem in SC and I think a big advantage in TC. That for SC, SC does not want to recognize that distinction, right? It might ask a question of, well, why can't kids directly engage in the language? For example, Come this, this matter of, you know, learning the skills of a civilization, right? Learning really practical, concrete, useful things. And you would not ask, well, how did this knowledge come to be in its current shape of understanding? Don't, don't worry yourself with that, okay? Just learn how to do the thing, right? right? So, well, how did we arrive at, you know, who are the important figures in establishing this? Um, maybe a little bit of that might be included, but basically that is, you know, it's a, it's a conversation for another time, you could say. But anyway, why don't kids directly engage with this language of, of how this knowledge came to be in its current shape? And isn't that critical thinking? And you say, well, why can't kids directly engage in it? Because they're not ready. In K-12, we really want to use these opportunities to get these literatures and these texts into place. That, for the same reason, kids are not ready to be the self-directors of their own learning, of their own education. Like, this has become almost an, an impossible position to take. Um, but, we we really, I mean, I'm advocating for getting back to more of an open debate, right? Like that, the, the point here with TVSC is that, yeah, education used to be much more TC and now it's much more SC. But, you know, the debate, the argument, 
didn't really take place. We do have a robust debate between um, Bagley and Dewey and other other figures as well. That's just sort of a convenient, you know, uh, a convenient touchstone. But basically, we've gotten so so deep into this very, you know, into this one particular mode, and without the certainty that it's necessarily better. It's just become so much more influential, right? So the intellectual history of that is very interesting, but nevertheless, we want to re-litigate re the two centers. So coming back to this question about why don't kids you know, engage directly with the language, uh, why do they just have to learn the literature of it? Again, they're, because they're not ready to do that. They're not ready to self-direct themselves. And in the same way, you know, we wouldn't ask, you know, why don't kids have research grants? And we don't want to overcomplicate things, right? Because they're kids, they don't have research grants, right? They don't self-direct their own learning, right? They're not ready to engage in these questions about, you know, how how what they're learning came to be in its current shape of understanding. That that's probably basically because that's just too abstract and it just requires too many other things that would have to be known in place for that to be a profitable educational enterprise. So I also want to come back to this idea of gratitude and ingratitude. And I'll also bring this silver bullet question up once again, as well as hedonism, just in, in coming to the conclusion here. And certainly there's a concern with you know, the university redefining its own mission as something that's going to save the world or save students or it's going to turn students into people who will save the world. And again, there's this almost odd tension about the university as an increasingly therapeutic corporation staffed by a therapeutic elite and setting upon social ills to cure and eradicate poverty, insecurity, frustration, and alienation, and more recently, racism, sexism, um, that, again, this, this paradox that I've discussed earlier about the need that, like the, the increasing mental health needs of students with, you know, mental ill health, students with anxiety and depression while at the same time education and university in particular is setting much more extreme and lofty goals for itself okay that all of like you know just to generalize all of our students need like therapeutic interventions to get through their day and they are going to save the world and education is not only going to, you know, meet its, its you know, 
at least what used to be its prime directive of just getting a good education and, you know, learning a lot about whatever your major might be. But also we're going to solve all of these social problems too. It's perhaps the strangest thing. And it's also interesting how little that really seems to be recognized or discussed. How those things may seem to be at odds with each other. So anyway, Oakshot makes this point when critics of his time would declare that universities and education must do this and that. As if they were exceeding all that they were already supposed to be doing. Right, that all of their students were already becoming so well educated that universities had to start to look for new frontiers to conquer. Right, well, we've already educated everyone. Everyone in our society is already, you know, extremely well educated. Everyone is at or above reading level or, or you know, their levels of, of math or, or whatever. And so um, we need to find a new challenge as if education were exceeding all of these and thus was looking to take on more great challenges. Take on the great challenges that plague civilization. That this is not seen as absurd by everyone might reveal how much we grossly overestimate in this silver bullet fallacy what education can do. But... This might all rely on the way our thinking about learning happens everywhere at all times and about schooling, going to a place to learn, have become ambiguously and amorphous blob melded into this new usage of education. Again, the breakdown of this distinction that all of the learning one does happens in school. And any learning one fails to receive is a fault of schooling. This is a level of expectation that educators needn't bother even trying to satisfy. For it becomes a task so Herculean as to become Sisyphean. Uh, again, this is the silver bullet thing that all of the learning that young people are supposed to get, they should get as part of their formal schooling. All the things that we want kids to learn, we started to... This is kind of the, the kind of curricular overcrowding that we're just going to start packing in everything. Anything that we think is important, we're going to start to emphasize in schools and we're going to make it a part of formal education. For example, something that I think... I mean, not that I'm opposed to it, but something like that I can recall would be bullying, right? The anti-bullying campaigns. I mean, this is something that, you know, it wasn't a part of schooling before, and then it became um, actually an important part of what schools are trying to do. And there are, you know, hundreds or even thousands of other examples without a serious consideration about well, what are we displacing with all these new things that we're adding in? Again, there's this, this is the other very strange, almost incomprehensible thing about education. As if, again, we almost think about education in a way that wouldn't really even be appropriate to think about our science. 
but just as a human civilization. If we were going to choose one of our institutions that can take on all these big, bigger, greater challenges, we would probably choose science, almost as our kind of crown jewel. Something like education that seems to be constantly faltering and floundering to kind of say, in addition to educating in a traditional sense, in addition to, you know, schooling, you're going to take on all of these, for example, socialization and this character education, for example, as in anti-bullying and just adding on and piling on more things. And more and more education became less and less academic because that's what it originally was. And when you start adding all of these non-academic things to it, that's what happens. It becomes less academic. And so if anyone's looking for a reason as to why, um, you know, in, in so many places that are, that again, the West really is the place that's been most student-centered. Like the hotbed of student-centeredness would have to be America. And just look at schools, look at the you know, the, the reading and math scores and, you know, who is at or below um, the, the prescribed level for where they ought to be. This is why. And again, it has everything to do with not really appreciating what education used to do. Oh, all education used to do was just be a transaction or a transfer of knowledge from you know, from teachers to students. That's all it was. Can you can you imagine? We need to make it transformational. Well, education certainly has been transformed, but it's been transformed into something that, perhaps intentionally, is no longer providing this incredibly valuable service of schooling. That we didn't appreciate what education could do, again, as something that was specific. So education was essentially retasked, largely along political lines, to abandon its old mission for the sake of a different mission. And this is another part, this is strange to talk about, but it's the strange psyche of education itself, that there's something about education, unlike other professions, that it doesn't defend itself. It doesn't defend its mission at all, let alone vigorously. I mean, sure, I'm picking up on some of those voices who, who I think are trying to, to maintain, you know, what education ought to do. Again, more like doing one thing well. But again, education didn't defend itself or its mission vigorously. Education was just a big pushover. That, you know, oh, education, you need to abandon your mission and start doing all of these new things that we think are more important. Okay. But, now, again, this is, I think, pedagogically true. But in terms of teaching practice, I think that a lot of teachers are themselves kind of holding the line in their own individual teaching practice. When they're in the classroom, you know, with their students, with the door closed, they are teaching and they're upholding and maintaining all of these great things. They're not going along with this, with the dominant pedagogy, that there are people who are teachers who are resisting. 
And I would argue that probably those are the best teachers. But I want to pick up on this idea about education in terms of its psyche, in, in terms of being a pushover. Because if we think just politically, and, you know, with considering Freire and even Oakshot, um, these are both, you know, politically minded in a way, as much as they are also interested in education. That education is just a mark, right? It's exactly the type of mark or easy prey that any kind of politically savvy revolutionary force would seize upon. And the real price has nothing to do with the institution of education or with schools. It's got everything to do with influencing the young, influencing young people. Okay, coming back to this whole silver bullet problem. I think that it is a result the current state of education. It's a result of avoiding a real debate about the purpose of education, or at least ordering these purposes into priorities. Scholasticism, hedonism, citizenship, creativity, individuality. There's no real debate that education just used to do one thing and now it does a different thing. And this lack of a debate, I think, has a lot to do with this a lack of a real intellectual contest, right? That it's so much like what might be called the long march through the institutions, right? That how does something change so radically uh, over a short period of time where it becomes something it never was before that no one ever decided or agreed upon that change? That it's just this internal kind of thing, right? Long march to the institutions, like a kind of a coup, a coup d'etat. So if education is, I'm thinking about curriculum, really, is overcrowded and overburdened by the full magnitude of each competing priorities, more priorities keep getting added on top of education. And there's, again, there's no really serious debate about what's, what's most important and what's less important. And it, it comes down to individual teachers making these decisions. We might conclude that the current definition of education is one that satisfies only those who issue new demands of education without failing to satisfy the demands themselves. So whenever a new demand comes up, education agrees to that as a new priority. But it probably can't really actually do it. So education is guilty and victim of this overpromising and underdelivering. And this is why something that it's certainly not as attractive or in 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 slang terms, it's not as sexy for education just to say, no, we're going to go back to the three R's because that's basically all we can do up to a certain point. Okay, we can't do all of these other things too. This is tantamount to forever tweaking the perfect plan to implement while the proverbial Rome is burning. 
again, that we that these these curriculums keep getting more and more idealistic and optimistic about all these, you know, we're going to create this whole new generation of, you know, genius, creative, individual artists, but, you know, but none of them are going to know how to read. One consequence of packing the infinite into the finite is that the vessel will eventually break and then it will serve no purpose. So how do we think about this packing the infinite into the finite, this overburdening, this curricular overburdening in education? Well, we can think of it simply as a manifestation of incompetence or negligence, of this failure to have these hard discussions and these real debates about what education is going to be, rather than, again, this whole pushover problem, right? Not standing up and saying, no, this is what we're for. Uh, some schools have done that, and those are probably the best schools. Now, we can also think of this packing the infinite into the finite and breaking the vessel. We can also think of this as a highly sophisticated strategy. Again, sensing where the weak parts are on a culture that you want to revolutionize. This is important too. Why aren't you doing this in school? Why aren't you teaching kids about that? Okay, we'll start. We'll start to do that. Again, these the the people pleaser characteristic of the collective psyche of education. Okay, when I'm saying pushover, I could also be saying people pleaser. It's a similar connotation for me. Okay, the failure of education today to cultivate the separation of self from subject knowledge and the acceptance of criticism drives campus hysteria where intellectual critiques are interpreted as personal attacks and teaching work by dead white men is perceived as an existential threat to students' sense of themselves. Students at the center has been a disaster but it is equally professionally disastrous for anyone to point this out. This is a case of the pedagogue's new clothes. And again, this idea of separating the self from subject knowledge, that this cool, dispassionate kind of academic rigor, this setting aside hot allegiances, the separation of the self from the subject knowledge. We've gone in the complete opposite direction. Dial up the heat of these molten allegiances and that there's no way to separate the self from the subject knowledge, etc. Just, again, what's interesting about Oakshot is we can look at everything he says and see how education has gone in the complete opposite direction of everything that he says. And then we can ask, how happy are we with the current place in which we find education, the current state of education. And if education today is in a state of failure, and it's the exact opposite of this, you know, this kind of TC voice, then that's, uh, that's a powerful empirical argument, I think, for getting back to a TVSE, teacher versus student-centered 
to reopening these questions and to having the debates that we should have had before education was just changed from the inside. Oakshot argues for the cultivation of intellect not as brain training, but as an induction into the civilization which was an individual's inheritance. Again, inheritance implies this continuity across time, not breaking, disrupting, revolutionizing. Inheritance, something that's passed from one to another, as in a, as in a guild of masters and apprentices. Education was, for Oakshot, properly considered as a transaction between the generations. And again, where SC wants you to see and hear transaction and think, well then, well then, if it's just a transaction, it's not transformational. You'd say, well, first of all, our job is not to transform the world, but second of all, these kinds of educational transactions that occur in teaching and learning are transformational, but maybe just not transformational in a specific political sense or in a Marxist sense. Transaction between the generations. Unlike Eliot, Oakshot stressed the important role of the school in cultural transmission. School was a place apart, detached from the immediate local world of the learner, its current concerns, and the directions it gives to his attention. As such, education that takes place in schools provides young people with an emancipation from the mere fact of living. Again, education as a school apart that's detached from the world of the learner and the current concerns of that world and the directions that world gives to his attention. Increasingly, education just has been absorbed into this world, or this world has colonized education, that the life and the world outside the school are the exact same as inside of it. This, from, for Oakshot and for TC, is a, a complete failure, a complete betrayal of schooling and education both. that a classroom in a way and almost in a, in a in a kind of a secular way but that a classroom should represent something more like a chapel like a, a place that you walk into and you kind of feel or experience that you're in a different kind of space this this idea um, is picked up in Postman, and Postman, uh, in a way, well, expresses a very similar idea, also in a very equally interesting way. So we'll come to that, and that's what he talks about with, uh, he uses the term thermostatic. But again, that school should emancipate people from the mere fact of living. But increasingly we've seen the fact of living take over school in a strange way.
I've got a kind of a final note here about these different strategies in education and, um, you know, again, about how these changes occur or how these new political thrusts become so omnipotent or, uh, you know, omnipresent in terms of how, you know, moving from something like basically how SC kind of completely took things over and this notice to say, you know, just tell them that your old way hurt kids or that it hurts the planet. So, you know, do it this way. Do it our new way. Again, this therapeutic emphasis on hurt and harm, right? Just say, well, the old way, you know, again, uh, academic-oriented TC, um, you know, education predicated on things like citizenship, just say that it hurts kids or just say that it hurts the planet. And education is, is inclined to just go along with it. Right, just using that language of hurt or harm in this way, blackmailing this kind of emotional blackmail, right? Because teachers really care about things that hurt kids, and say, well, that way of teaching hurts kids, and this way of teaching is is better. So if you really don't want to hurt kids, or, or again, this kind of new sustainability um, impulse that you know. This is hurting the planet, and so we need we need, we need a, a new educational methodology that doesn't hurt kids, and we need a new educational telos that doesn't hurt the planet, right? Just to be anti-hurt, and to just to redefine to redefine the terms. I want to say the terms of a debate, but as I said, there isn't there really was no debate on these sweeping this this revolution that occurred in education and now is using education as its launching pad for a broader cultural revolution. That it's just, again, education, people-pleasing, pushover. Um, yeah, just use this language of things that hurt kids or hurt the planet. Um, and uh, you'll experience no resistance to revolutionizing education. And... Uh, to just impose a new will and a new way. Again, this is the other interpretation. This is the more sophisticated interpretation uh, versus just, you know, that, that there's no malice. It's just, you know, not to ascribe malice uh, where simple, you know, innocent incompetence can also explain the same phenomenon. Okay, so that wraps up the pod, uh, and that wraps up them. Again, these four thinkers from uh, Nicholas Tate's book, uh, this kind of uh, the conservative case for education, I believe it is. Let me double check that just as I'm uh, wrapping up here. The I believe this is the fourth season. Okay. Tate, conservative education. Nicholas Tate, the conservative case for education against the current by Nicholas Tate. Uh, again, the my, my them, uh, T.S. Eliot, Hannah Arendt, E.D. Hirsch, and Michael Oakeshott. Those are the four um, most important people in his book. 
And again, this is, uh, I've described it as an admirable book. Maybe that's not, not strong enough praise. Um, and I've, uh, again, I've editorialized a great deal and I've discussed Oakshot and also I kind of got into a free area a little bit here, um, which I think works out, um, worked out quite well. So thanks very much for listening and, um, you know, come back again for next season. Thank you.